and welcome to the Hand in Hand show where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hand in Hand show, a part of Stroke Focus. Today, we're here with Julia Fox Garrison. She was a 37-year-old mom at the time of her hemorrhagic stroke, and it nearly took her life. Julia has refused to give up, and she has not only recovered amazingly, but she has also taken a new mission on in her life. Julia has a lot to say and lessons to share about humor, inner strength, and self-determination. She's published a best-selling book called, I Love This Title, Don't Leave Me This Way, or When I Get Back on My Feet, You'll Be Sorry. The book was selected for the top seven must-read books for anyone pursuing a nursing career, and it has also won the Applied Association of Therapeutic Humor Award for furthering their mission. Recognized by Reader's Digest as today's best nonfiction. There's so much more here to tell about her. I really want to bring her on and start asking questions. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me, Cam. You had a stroke at the age of 37. A lot of people that have strokes at a young age feel lost, number one. How did you deal with all of this? What happened that got you here now? Well, like you said, back in 1997, the internet was just budding. It hadn't arrived yet. And that also included cell phones, too, which everybody uses their cell phones to document things. I was actually in the corporate world, climbing the corporate ladder. I was at work one day. I didn't feel really good. And I was very busy. I was actually staying in, at work for the weekend to move my department to another building. And around two in the afternoon, my head started just erupting like a volcano. The pressure in the walls of my skull was just so great that I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit. I, I could only pace. The department secretary drive me to the hospital. And that, I like to tell everybody that if you have something wrong, if your gut is telling you something is wrong, always, always call an ambulance because 911 gets you there faster. And number two, they are the people that are addressed first at the triage center, not any walk-ins, regardless of your situation. Although protocols have changed since I presented 20 years ago, I just celebrated my 20th homage, my hemorrhage, and I celebrate it every year because it gives me power over it. 20 years post-stroke is just amazing to me that I've had all these bonus years. But when I got to the hospital, I didn't realize this, but every time my blood pressure was pulsing, it was releasing blood in my brain. And that went on for hours. So the pool of blood in my brain killed a lot of brain cells. And the last memory I have of that day was being running, rushed down the hallway by a big burly male nurse, and he asked me to grab his fingers. And that's when I started having the stroke. I was, started going blurry, and I couldn't, I couldn't use, my whole left side was paralyzed. And I said, am I having a stroke? And I think, so strange, because I knew no one who had had a stroke. I didn't have any family history of stroke. I didn't even know what stroke was. And to say that, I think it was amazing that 
inner voice is telling you something, and that's where our intuition is so knowledgeable and true. So the male nurse says to me, what, you want to smoke? And I knew he was saying that to not get me nervous. He was trying to keep me calm and, and not say, hey, listen, you're going to croak right now. <laughs> so um, when I came out of my brain surgery, the first words I had were, there's a reason I'm here. I have a purpose. I don't know what that is. Those were my first words. And I could say literally five years after post-stroke, I knew what my purpose was. And it, it's completely different than it was as a corporate mom. I still am a mom, but my son's now 23. I did die on the operating table. My brain stopped functioning. My heart stopped beating. Uh, my breath stopped and I had a vision. And the vision was a ladder. And I was on the ladder and I had a choice to either, well, I always say, should I stay or should I go now? But the choice was, it was a distinct choice from God that I had a choice to either leave or come back in an albeit broken body and work on climbing my relationship with God and helping others. And I hope I'm still working on that mission and it won't be fulfilled, like I said, until I'm in my grave. Absolutely. Even if we hadn't had the stroke, I feel like we still learn and move forward and everything. But after stroke, you see it, you know it. It's just different. And I like the word purpose. Purpose is we all need to find. You have to wake up, say hello, good morning, this is a good day, because both of those things are very important to your recovery. As long as you find your purpose, I think you're going to be okay. How long were you in the hospital? Did they actually have a rehab hospital? Yes, I was in the hospital for at least three months, I think. But I actually discharged myself. I had the doctors believing the therapist said I was ready to go home and the therapist believing the doctors said I could go home. So everybody was writing up the papers and it was me who was controlling it. But I realized that that was very selfish of me to do that to my husband, who was dealing with a toddler, who was in the midst of potty training when I stroked, which threw potty training right out the window. And then it turned into me being potty trained because I needed assistance in the bathroom. I needed assistance for being fed. I mean, my whole left side was completely paralyzed. I couldn't eat without someone feeding me because the whole left side of my face all the way down my body is all numb. And it still is. And I had to learn how to chew and not chew the inside of my mouth. I was always bleeding because I was chewing my tongue and my left side of my face. And I had a lot of swallowing issues initially. I needed a lot of assistance. And when I talk about purpose, I believe everybody on this earth has a purpose and they just have to seek it. And when they seek it, they will find it. If they don't seek it, they may never find it. I happen to have mine presented to me in a, a weird way, but like, I never intended on writing a book. I mean, I never had a desire to write one. Like a lot of people have a fire in their belly to write a book, not me. I wanted one dedicated to me so that I'd have my name in print. <laughs> no, no work. But I realized that all the negativity, see back in 97, 1997, there was no such buzzword as patient-centered care or patient-focused care. Now that is all the, the buzz in the healthcare industry. It's all about the patient experience. 
and the patient outcome. And I, that's what I speak to um, both on both sides of the bedroom. And so I, I realized that all the negativity that was being presented to me, that one, either if I lived, I'd never walk again, and I'd never get out of the wheelchair. Everything was these absolutes. And I don't believe in absolutes, not when it comes to human lives. The only absolute I can tell you is that I have control over my attitude, and that's the absolute I have. But other than that, I don't buy into those. I also had a lot of percentages thrown at me. So with the type of stroke that I had, I had like a 2% chance of much recovery. And I don't believe percentages are appropriate for humans. They're good for objects, but not for humans. So I defy every percentage because percentages to me are good for baseball, but not for when you're giving someone what their outcome is going to be. I think that's up to me. Absolutely. But let's talk about your book for a minute. You wrote it in different voices. So I hear that there's a character called Dr. Jerk, Dr. Panic, and even a Nurse Doom. Tell us about them. First of all, when I was writing, it's weird that I wrote a book too because I had such difficulty reading. Um, I have left neglect. Um, I've overcome the part where I used to not be able to even be able to read a clock because I could only see the right side of the clock from 12 to 6 but nothing from six to 12. It took me a long time to be able to actually read because I would drop everything on the left side of the page. So, and I still suffer from that, except that I can see now, but I, now I have this general unawareness of my left side and it gets me into all kinds of trouble and leaves people around me in bewilderment, which I always find humorous. I knew that I didn't want to write a book that was a journalizing of a blow-by-blow recovery story because nobody really wants to read that. And I wanted it to be something that would engage you and pull you in right away. And so what I have is the first two chapters are written in third person. And you see Julia kiss her husband and her three-year-old in the morning and get in her car to do an hour commute. And she turns the radio off and she Thanks God for the house, the home, the family. All the very obvious things that we all can see and feel in our lives. And then once the hemorrhage uh, occurs and I come out of brain surgery, I end the chapter with she's gone and start up in second person. Some people in in some of my reviews say it was annoying, but I wanted to make the reader feel what I felt, feel the frustration and how confusing and So speaking in second person, I thought that would give the reader the experience. And then at the very end, there's two chapters in first person because I've learned so much on my journey. And this journey, my stroke has become an educator more than any university could educate me. And I wanted to share some of the things I learned, but I didn't want to preach to the reader because that's not my place. I'm not on a pulpit to uh, preach. I'm here... Only, and then also in my presentations, it's, I, it's not about me. It's about what can I give you through my experience so that you don't have to f- go through what I went through. So at the very end of the book, I'm thanking God for things that are not so obvious, like being able to roll over in bed on my own, 
being able to use the bathroom myself, be able to feed myself. The gratitude changed and the, the gratitude was much more simple. And it wasn't about things, it was about just having self-independence, to be, have autonomy. Because that's what we all want. We want to be independent. We don't want to be dependent on others. The reason why I gave some names to the book was I was labeled a lot of things. I was called certain labels. One particular that really, and to the point where I asked them to remove it from my records, I was constantly being told that I was impulsive. Because why? Because right hemisphere stroke in textbooks say that if you have a right hemisphere stroke, you're going to have impulsive behavior. So they automatically assumed that I was impulsive because of the type of stroke I had. In actuality, I was impulsive, but that's who I was as a person before my stroke. I've always been an impulsive dump in with both feet, sometimes without thinking. And so I think that words can be very detrimental to recovery. I felt like if you call me impulsive, I prefer to say spontaneous. Now, how much nicer is that than impulsive? Dr. Jerk was named that. I actually have I had a lot of readers write me from around the world and ask if this person was Dr. Jerk because that's who they have. Unfortunately, a lot of patients, a lot of people, survivors, have written me to say that my experience mirrored their own. And I do think it's getting better. I definitely see a much more embracing healthcare community. I think they're paying more attention now to how the patient feels and thinks and how we're all unique. We're not a cookie cutter nation of patients. So Dr. Jerk was called that because he could not get past his own diagnosis and no one really knew what the cause was. And so for him to be so pompous and was insistent that I had cerebral vasculitis, which the treatment is cytoxin, chemotherapy, 10 hours of chemotherapy. And it was very difficult. I did five treatments of it. And finally I said, no, I'm not doing it. This uh, my intuition, which is your honest voice told me I didn't, I, that isn't the right treatment path. And thank God I did that because I'd be dead now. I would not be here because it was a lifetime of, of chemotherapy. So I just gave them the names that they kind of were like Dr. Panic. He was basically following suit and what reading my records and saying, you're going to die, you're going to die. And I'm like, well, we're all going to die. I just don't know when. You know, I have nurse food, but then I had so many awesome people too. When you read some of them, like, would, you know, I was joking all the time, pulling pranks on the staff. I mean, they all bought into it and it was, it made the time with them more personal and fun. I do have deficits, but I never talk about them. You know, I'm always talking about, oh, I, I only have half a brain, you know, <laughs> but I do it with humor and none of my friends or anybody remembers that. I, I mean, other than they see my issues, because right. when we talk about the problems that I do have, they grow and they become magnified. And I feel like that's not the part of who I am that I want to emphasize. I want to emphasize me and my humor and I wanted my husband to stay married to me, not because he was my nurse and caregiver, but because he was having fun. I wanted him to feel good. So my hardcover came out in 06, paperback came out in 07, and then the audio was 2012. I originally, I don't know if you knew this, but I originally self-published and I went to the bestseller list in two months. 
And from that experience, I started getting invited. I went on a news feed and that went out to the world because I actually did a uh, Korean documentary on humor. That's another whole story that is too long to go into, but it was fun and interesting. Absolutely. So tough question here. Do you ever say, why me? You know what? And I'm going to state this up front because I know it's not normal. I never, ever said, why me? And I don't think that's normal. I think that was a gift from God. I think that what happened for me was that I said, okay, this happened. Let's move on. I, need, I have a three-year-old at home. I need to figure out a way that I could be his mother again. To be honest with you, I felt like everybody in that hospital, you know, we were a warehouse of strangers, all mending from something that could have said, why me? Mm-hmm. So I didn't ever feel that way. I felt just so grateful because I had such a huge support network. You know, I have eight brothers. I have a huge network of friends. And so I just felt, wow, there's people out there that don't have nearly what I have. So for me, I, I could only experience gratitude for what I was going through and the support system I had. Pity doesn't do anything for either the provider or the, the person. I just can't stand the word pity. Pity does nothing. And um, to have self-pity is just a waste of time. What I do say is that it's important to acknowledge what you're going through. It's important to have the pity party, but make sure you have an exit strategy. Because when you stay at the pity party, you make yourself a victim. And I want to be a survivor. Right. Yeah, I do pity parties, not very often, but every once in a while, and I give myself permission to do that, and then I do give myself an end time. Yeah, that is so important, because if we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge our hurt and our sadness and our disappointment, then how can you progress? Right. It releases that pent-up. I think that's true. So I never cried in front of anyone. I only cried by myself because... Everybody kept coming in my room, had sad faces. I couldn't handle that. So, because it doesn't just happen to the person who's suffering. It's everyone who loves that person. And so I knew that the only way I was going to heal was to change the environment. So I made everyone come in with a joke. And that night when I was by myself, that's when I did my prayers and I'd be like, help me, Lord, get through this. And I'd cry, but not in front of others, because I knew that all I would do would make them cry. Right. Moving on, you are a public speaker now. How did that come about? You shared that you were in the corporate world, and I have a note that says you were really actually afraid to speak in public at that time. How did that change? Well, so, yes, I have to say that I... In my corporate job, I often would be asked to go to conferences to speak about our company. And it was more of a gift from my VP to send me to somewhere nice and warm when it's cold here or whatever. But I was always said no because I was afraid of the microphone and I would be embarrassed. And I've learned when you speak from your heart, your intentions are only good. And yes, I'll make mistakes, which I do, then it's okay. So I am no longer afraid of the microphone. 
the only nerves that I get is that I want to make sure that I enlighten others to think differently than when they walked into that conference. I feel so blessed that before every event, I say, God, give me the words that this audience needs to hear, and may I impact at least one person today. And once I say that prayer, I'm not nervous. And it's really been um, a journey. I guess the, the thing is, I first started getting invited, and I realized I didn't want to just tell my story, because that's not really what my presentations are about. It's really about what the education of stroke and the journey I've been through and the, the observations and lessons I've learned. Like I said earlier, when you speak from the heart and if your intentions are good, then you can do no wrong. And I also learned that when I'm true to myself, I can be true to others. You had given a special email and said you had some quotes you would like to pass on? Well, first of all, my advice to other survivors, and it's not just stroke, we all are facing some type of adversity in our life. It knocks on all our doors in some fashion. The first thing that I'd say to someone is that the way we talk to ourselves is sometimes very dangerous and mean. We aren't kind to ourselves, so be kind to yourself. Talk to yourself gently and don't be hard on yourself and realize that your happiness is an inside job and persevere and focus at one thing at a time. I believe we should all have a motto and, and everybody should create their own based on their situation and just something that empowers them. I had a mantra in the hospital and my mantra is the same as it was the day I presented in the hospital and it is today. It's positive outlook equals positive outcome. It means that even if the negatives exist, because they do, if you focus on the positives, they'll be much more positive. So you'll have a better outcome. So that's one of my mottos. Another one is I'm a hugger. I like maul people, according to my husband. But I like to connect and hug people. And the signature, you've probably seen it in my email, is hugs. And hugs represents humor ultimately gives strength. And you can interchange humor with hope because hope is also another dynamic moving target. Hope is what gets us through to getting out of bed. Hope is a motivator. And then one of my favorite songs through my recovery, believe it or not, was Christine Aguilera's Fighter. So you because it makes me that much stronger makes me work a little bit harder it makes me that much wiser so thanks for making me a fighter made me learn a little bit faster made my skin a little bit thicker makes me that much smarter so thanks for making me a fighter because this is how I sum up my relationship with my stroke and that's what my stroke did for me it made me be a fighter and realize the importance of relationships and connections. That's what I've learned through my stroke. Again, the stroke is not me. It is now a part of me, but it is not who I am. It has taught me many things, though, and I'm grateful for it now. And I know that's hard for people to hear, 
So I've written several articles on why I celebrate my, my hemorrhage day. I celebrate it because I need to give myself power over it. And by doing that, it allows me to be able to keep moving forward. I want to thank you for being with us. I hope to hear more from you. And I want to encourage everybody to read Don't Leave Me This Way or When I Get Back on My Feet, You'll Be Sorry by Julia Fox Garrison. Thank you, Kim. I really enjoyed being with you today, too. And I would like to offer to your listeners that I also do Skype book clubs and I can Skype with them. If it's local, I like to come and drink wine with them. But otherwise, I can Skype and do, I have a whole different talk about the book journey, which is interesting in itself. I would open that up to have people contact me. We could set that up. That would be fun. You can find more information about Julia at www.julia, J-U-L-I-A, Fox, F-O-X, Garrison. G-A-R-R-I-S-O-N dot com. That's Julia Fox Garrison, all one word, dot com. You can also find Julia's book, Don't Leave Me This Way, or When I Get Back on My Feet, You'll Be Sorry, which is a national bestseller on Amazon.com and Audible.com. This episode of Stroke Focus was brought to you by Deborah Meyerson. Deborah is a consulting professor at Stanford University where she was tenured until she suffered a stroke seven years ago. She is now writing a book called Identity Theft, Rediscovering Ourselves After Stroke. This is about the emotional side of stroke recovery, especially the journey to redefine one's life and oneself when so much of who you used to be is stolen from you. She is not only sharing her own story, but those of dozens of other stroke survivors, family members, and caregivers with whom she's spoken about this difficult process of rediscovery. Learn more on her blog at www.identitytheftbook.org. And thank you for listening.